as we go to God's word this morning, our primary text is 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 16. Uh, Pat will come and read that for us in just a minute. Um, As you'll see as we read those verses, really the main exhortation of those verses is an exhortation to holiness. And so we want to look together this morning at what does it mean uh, to be holy? How do we pursue holiness? So this text will first exhort us toward holiness, and then it will also uh, give us some ways that we as believers are to pursue that holiness that God requires from us. After First Peter, we'll go to Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45. Nate will read that for us. We're going there because Leviticus is actually quoted in our text this morning. So I want you to see that this really does come from the Old Testament. It's showing us that God's word is the same. It's not like the Old Testament is old and bygone and the New Testament is something fresh and new. No, God's word is cohesive. So we're going to go back to Leviticus and see how what Peter commands us in his letter is the same as what God commanded us in Leviticus. After that, uh, Lisa will come for us and read for us from Ephesians 4 that will show us, again, how the the new creation in Jesus Christ, that when we trust in Jesus Christ, become the new creation, that is to live a life of holiness, and that's what Ephesians 4, 17 to 24 describes for us really well. And then lastly, uh, Don will come and read for us from 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 11. And what I want that to highlight for us is just how the, the life of holiness does require effort on our part. Uh, it requires hard work. And again, our text in First Peter shows us that, and this text here in First Thessalonians will also show us that. So all of these things center on the idea that God wants us to be holy and how we are to pursue holiness in Jesus Christ. So with that, uh, Pat, if you want to come on up for us and begin our reading in First Peter 1. First Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. A word uh, to the, the first letter written to the Thessalonians, verses 5 through 11. Tells them that they are 
children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Well, I know the uh, topic of holiness in itself maybe doesn't seem uh, all that appealing to us, right? It doesn't seem to be the most practical concern of our lives uh, day to day. You know, we're probably much more worried about things like paying the bills, taking care of our kids, uh, and many other things besides. And so to think about just learning about holiness and how to be holy seems, you know, maybe like 10th or 11th uh, down on our list in terms of our daily priorities. And yet, I think we also know, especially uh, those among us here this morning who are believers, we know that it should be a priority for us, right? We know that it must be a priority for us. Uh, Indeed, it must be a priority because it is commanded very clearly in God's word. Again, if you still have your Bibles open to 1 Peter, I just encourage you to look again at these verses with me now, 13 to 16 of chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I hope it's clear just in reading that, that the emphasis of these verses is that we be holy. That idea is repeated two times, is it not? Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So note that all your conduct, everything that you do is to be under this realm, under this command of holiness. And then again, it's repeated in verse 16 as he quotes from us the book of Leviticus that we also read, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so we see very clearly that this passage is commanding us to holiness. And I hope we will be able to see by the end of this message how holiness really does involve all of our lives. How holiness does not simply refer to uh, some minor religious commitment that we have that we take care of during part of the week or during part of our time, but rather holiness is inclusive of all of our life, of everything that we do. And in that way, there could be nothing more practical, nothing more important than understanding what it means to be holy in all of our conduct. Now let me take a moment just to show you how I understand the framework of this passage here, because the framework of this passage is going to be the the outline for my sermon, more or less. So first, beginning again in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now notice there is a command in this verse, in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in a little bit, I'm going to make the argument that the way in which we pursue holiness 
is by setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, hope will lead to holiness. And so first I want to look at what is holiness, what does it mean, and then I want to look at how we pursue it. And again, how we pursue it is by setting our hope fully on the grace that we brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But that isn't the only descriptor we have in these verses for how we pursue holiness. Also notice in verse 13 the words, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. And so there's a way in which we are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and that is we are to set our hope there by preparing our minds for action and by being sober-minded. And then lastly, there's one other descriptor given in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So we must not be conformed to our passions. So I'm going to argue that those three things, namely not being conformed to our passions, preparing our minds for action, and being sober-minded, those three things are the, the tactics, so to speak, or the ways in which we set our hope fully on the grace of God. And when you put all those things together, then we become holy as God himself is holy. So that's how I'm putting this passage together, and that's where I want to take us this morning. So first, we have the important question of what is holiness? What is holiness? Now, I I wish I could tell you that there were a very easy answer to this question, you know, just give you a short little like five-word definition. But the reality is that holiness is complicated. Holiness is a little bit mysterious. Uh, Now, there's many different ways. You know, I I went to probably five or six different theology books this week trying to find who had, you know, the right definition of holiness. But unfortunately, you know, all five or six different theology books I go to, I get five or six different definitions of, of what holiness really is. But there's a good reason why holiness is so enigmatic, why it's so mysterious. And the reason why holiness is so mysterious is because holiness relates directly to the character of God, relates directly to the person of God. In fact, I think that if you look across the Bible, there's probably no more characteristic of God that is closer to his heart, that is closer to his nature, than is holiness. Holiness almost seems to be what it is that makes God God. Indeed, even in these verses, we see repeated the refrain, right, that that God is holy. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy. So God himself is holy. And then again, quoting from Leviticus, since it is written, you shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. And we as humans should not presume that we are going to be able to see into the depths of God, right? We are not going to be able to completely understand, to completely wrap our minds around even just what it means for God to be God and who God is. Yes, we can understand many of the truths about who God is, many of the qualities of God, but to understand the essence of God, to understand what makes God God, that is something that we will be exploring through all eternity and will never even in eternity come to the bottom of. And so how much less we who sit here when we hear this statement that God is holy, should we understand that we are just glimpsing right now the fringes of something that is beautiful, something that is amazing, something that is majestic. 
Holiness is intentionally a mysterious quality because it's come so close to the very heart of God. Indeed, in all of Scripture, there is no other quality besides holiness that we see repeated of God three times over, right? One of the most famous passages that talks about God's holiness is Isaiah 6, where the prophet Isaiah is coming into the throne room of God. And when he comes into the throne room of God, what does he see? What does he hear? Well, he sees these strange beings flying all around God's throne, and he hears them cry out continually, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that's what they repeat over and over. Holy, holy, holy. This is the nature of God. He is thrice holy. Or in Exodus 15, 11, right after the people have been delivered from Pharaoh, right after they've come through the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies have been destroyed, they sing this song to the Lord. And this song that Moses sings to the Lord, he says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? He's saying that God alone is holy. Indeed, other parts of Scripture say very specifically and clearly that God alone is holy, that holiness is not an attribute or characteristic that belongs to anything else other than God alone. So 1 Samuel 2.2, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. Or Revelation 15.4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. And so when we are wondering what holiness is, how to grasp holiness, what we are essentially asking is, who is God? Who is this God that he is so holy, that he is so unique, that he is so supreme over all things? This is God's holiness. And so you see, when Peter is exhorting us in his letter to be holy as God is holy, I know one way we often kind of boil that down or simplify that is to some kind of moral righteousness, all right, or moral goodness. Like if we do the right things, then we will be holy. But beloved, it's so clear from Scripture that holiness is much bigger than simply doing the right things. It's much bigger than simply the right set of behaviors. It's actually being conformed to the very character of God himself. It's becoming so near to God that you, you become full of God. Right? It's just like if someone moves very near to the sun, what's going to happen to them? They're going to burn up, right? They're essentially going to become of the nature of the sun. The flames are going to consume them. That's what's commanded when Scripture is commanding us to holiness. It's saying, get so near to God that this attribute of God that is unique to God alone consumes you, that it burns you up, that it becomes part of you, so that you yourself become holy just as God is holy. And so in that way, maybe the the clearest way or the most straightforward way to really simplify holiness is that holiness simply means devoted to God. Holiness means that you are devoted to God. And that's why we can see in the Old Testament that not only human beings are holy, right? Uh, the, the greatest concentration of the word holy is in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, where it talks to us about the temple of God and everything needed for the temple, because everything needed for the temple had to be holy. 
because God's presence was going to be in the temple. So all those things were going to be near to God. So all those things in the temple needed to be holy. And so one of the clearest examples, I think, that, that summarizes this point of holiness as being devoted to God is what it says in Exodus chapter 30 of anointing oil, right? So normally we wouldn't think of anointing oil as something that can be moral or immoral, right? It's just anointing oil. But anointing oil can be holy or unholy. So Exodus 30, 31. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. So notice in those verses what it is that makes this anointing oil holy. What it is that makes this anointing oil holy is that it's not used on an ordinary person, that there's none other like it in composition. So this is an oil that's not used for any kind of common use. It's not something that you just wake up in the morning and put on your face. No holy anointing oil is something that is used only for the purposes of God. It is something that is devoted to God alone. And because it is devoted to God alone, that makes this anointing oil holy. And so it is for us, beloved, if we want to be holy, then we must, we must be devoted to God and devoted to him alone. Now, one of the amazing things about looking at holiness in this way is that this idea of being devoted to God is also true of God himself. God himself is devoted to himself. He is devoted to God. Isaiah 48, verse 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is seeking his own glory. He is devoted to his own name. In that way, God himself is completely holy. He defends his own righteousness. He makes known his own praise. And because God is devoted to himself, because he's devoted to his own glory in this way, God himself can be said to be holy. When Jesus was on earth, Jesus himself, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was devoted to God. Jesus cleansed the temple, right, when it was full of all these impurities. And I love what his disciples say in John 2.17 after they saw him clear the temple. It said, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was consumed with zeal for the Lord. Jesus was devoted to the Lord in every way. And ultimately, what this means for our lives, beloved, is that we ourselves are to be nothing less than living sacrifices. Romans 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, writing to Christians, telling us how we are to live. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Beloved, this is how we are to see our entire lives, as sacrifices that have been laid upon an altar, ready to be consumed for the purposes of God, whatever those purposes may be. 
We must not see our lives as our own. We must not say that, well, this part of my time over here is really, you know, my time and I do what I want with it, do what I want with it. But this time over here, you know, this many hours a day, this many hours a week, I'm going to give that to God and see what God wants me to do with it. No, beloved, we are living sacrifices. We are to be holy in all of our conduct. We are to be devoted to God in every way. Whatever God requires, that we must do. It is only in that way that we can be holy. To whatever extent we are double-minded or we serve two different masters, serving ourselves part of the time, serving God part of the time, or even worse, serving some other idol part of the time and serving God another part of the time. To that extent, beloved, we are not holy. We are not devoted to God in every way. Rather, we are repugnant to God. Jesus died and rose again precisely so that we could die to ourselves completely. Die to ourselves completely and live in the life that is provided through the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that our lives belong wholly to God. And yes, that may be scary, right? Because we don't always know what God is going to require of us. We don't always know what God is going to demand of us. And so, yes, it's scary. And we shouldn't take away the scariness out of it because God does sometimes command us to very risky and fearful things. And yet, beloved, in the example of Jesus Christ, more than anything else, we should be able to nevertheless say that God loves us and he cares for us. And so whatever he commands for us is going to be for our good. Even if he commands us to sell everything we own, and even if that thought terrifies us, even if we wonder, well, how am I going to eat, Lord? How am I going to have shelter? How am I going to have clothes? We should be able to go to the Lord and say, he knows that we need these things, and he cares for us. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount talks about he provides for the sparrows whatever they need. And are we not worth more than many, many sparrows? How much more will he provide for you what you need? And so, yes, this command to holiness is a fearful command because it requires us to offer ourselves wholly to God. And yet, in offering ourselves wholly to God, we might have the privilege the pleasure of knowing all of God's provision for us, all of his care for us, so that our life losing every worldly thing and gaining God will be a thousand times better than gaining every worldly thing and losing God. And so pursue holiness, beloved. Yes, it is hard and it is scary. There are so many times in my own life where I might feel a burden on my heart, the Lord calling me to holiness in some way, calling me to sacrifice something for him or to live radically for him in some way. And and immediately the response of my heart is to say, Lord, I don't know if I can do that. (laughs) Lord, I'm not sure that I can give that thing up. I'm not sure that I can make myself vulnerable in that way. Don't I need to, you know, take care of myself and take care of my family in this way or that way? And yet, as soon as my heart responds in that way, again, I hear the word of the Lord coming back to me saying, I will care for you. I will supply all that you need. Why will you not give it up for me? Do you not trust me? Do you not know that I love you? Beloved, it is so easy for us today 
so easy, especially living here in suburbia in America, to think that we should just kind of take care of ourselves, right? That God's given us good jobs, God's supplied all we need, you know, he's given us grocery stores that are full of stocked shelves, he's given us homes that are nice shelters, you know, God's given us all these things, so we should just, you know, make sure we enjoy all these good things that God has given us, uh, you know, be, be faithful in our jobs, be, be faithful in, you know, saving for retirement, and just all, all of these very natural human ways of thinking, and I don't want to say that any of those things are sinful. I'm not saying that any of those things are sinful by any stretch. But what I am saying is that we can get into this mentality of thinking that that's all that God expects of us, that that's all that he requires of us. And then if we do that, we're kind of doing a good thing. And then, yes, God may call us to sacrifice, you know, somewhere around the fringes, maybe like, uh, you know, giving enough money so that now we can't afford Netflix for a month or something like that, you know. But beloved, we must understand that everything we own is God's. Our very lives are God's. There is nothing that we have, not our money, not our breath, not our families. There is nothing that we have that is not God's. And therefore, we must be willing to lay all on God's altar. To say, Lord, whatever you would have for me, that I am willing to do, even if it seems crazy. Even if I don't know how my family is going to be provided for. Even if I don't know where I'm going to go for food or shelter. Lord, I trust you that you love me and you will provide for me. But this is why in 1 Peter 1 13, Peter exhorts us that the way to holiness is to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, when we are living for this world, When our hopes are set on this world, when our hopes are set on having a nice house right now, having the retirement funding that we need right now, having all these various things that the world continues to scream at us, so you need this, you need this kind of insurance, take care of yourself in this way. If our hope is set on those things, on finally getting to that place of earthly security, of earthly comfort, where maybe then we can imagine we'll be in a place where we can really serve others because then all of our own needs will be taken care of. If we set our hope fully there, we will never know holiness. We will never be fully devoted to God because we will have this big pile of stuff that we have this label on, that we just label it as our own, mine, And then, yes, we might be building another pile over here that we say, for the Lord or for others. But what Peter is saying to us here is that our hope should be set fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ means when Jesus Christ returns, when Jesus Christ returns with a great shout, he is going to call all the living and all the dead to rise up out of their graves, to stand before his judgment throne. And then God has given to his son, Jesus Christ, the authority to judge. And so Jesus is going to judge the whole world. 
some to everlasting torment, others to everlasting blessing. And so we who have hoped in Christ, the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ is nothing less than that grace of saying, you are mine and you will go and be with me forever and ever. It is the the grace that Peter himself just got done describing in verses 3 to 12. That's the reason why in verse 13 he says, set your hope fully on this grace because he's just described this grace to you. He said that you will get an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He is saying that you will get a salvation, a rescue, ready to be revealed at the last time. He's saying that your faith will result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And yes, that is praise and honor and glory toward God, but also scripture tells us that God himself will give us commendation for the holiness that we have found in this life, for the works that we have done in love for others and in love for God. God himself will sing our praise for the good things that he himself has worked in us. And so there's all these wonderful things that we have to look forward to, beloved. There is a mountain of gold, as it were, stored up in heaven for us that is so much greater of a mountain than any small, tiny stockpile that we could gain down here, that we are fools, beloved. We are fools if we live for this life here and now and only give the leftovers to God. How much better would it be? How much of a privilege would it be, beloved, to be able to give up all that we have here and now? To become fools and beggars here and now and receive treasure in heaven than it would be to enjoy the comforts of life below for 60, 70, maybe if you're strong, 100 years. And then to get into God's eternal presence And to find that your treasure isn't quite what you hoped? (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong. There's going to be no regret when we get into God's presence. We're all going to be so happy to be there. But at the same time, beloved, God has given us the opportunity here and now to store up treasures in heaven, to store up rewards in heaven. So that, yes, it may feel like sacrifice here and now. It may feel painful here and now. We may feel foolish here and now. Other people may think we're stupid here and now. But God's given us the opportunity to live life right now in such a way totally devoted to him. Living as a sacrifice upon the altar of God so that the day will come at the revelation of Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ returns and he judges the living and the dead. He separates the sheep from the goats to come into his presence and to receive treasures, blessing, honor, glory, beyond our wildest imagination here and now. I just uh, finished watching uh, The Hobbit Trilogy with a few of my kids. I don't know if all of you have seen The Hobbit Trilogy, or maybe you've read the book. Uh, One of the most amazing parts, or one of the most amazing visual parts of that trilogy, I thought, uh, was when the, the dwarves first enter the mountain where all that treasure is held, right? And when they first enter it, Smaug the dragon is still there and he's guarding that treasure. But what it depicts is basically a whole mountain that's just full of treasure. 
There are these stone pillars that have been carved out to keep the mountain held up. But underneath all those stone pillars, seemingly hundreds of feet deep, is just gold upon gold, gems upon gems, treasure upon treasure. It is treasure beyond anything that any of us have seen in this world. Indeed, it's treasure beyond anything that ever has existed in this world. That's why it's a fictional story. And yet in my mind, in my heart, that is an image. It's a physical image of a spiritual reality, but it is an image of what God is offering to us. If we will simply live our lives for him here and now, if we will simply not account anything as our own, if we will simply not even account our lives as our own, but say, Lord, I am yours in every way. Whatever you command me to do, that I will do. Wherever you want me to go, that I will, there I will go. Beloved, that is the heart of holiness. That is the essence of holiness. And yet, and this is my final point, we know that this is not an easy thing to do. There are some Christians that uh, espouse this idea, this notion of, uh, of let go and let God. Um, the idea that really all you need to do is just surrender and then somehow God takes over and you kind of become holy passively. You know, you don't really have to work at it. God does it in you. Now it is very true that God does it in you. No holiness that we attain is ever the work of our own hands, is ever the result of our own hard work. Nevertheless, when we look at scripture, we do see that certain efforts are commended to us. Certain efforts are commanded to us. And so look in verse 13 of 1 Peter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. That is the first thing that we must do. Preparing your minds for action. I think where Jesus speaks to this point is where he talks about counting the cost. He's saying that no one goes and builds a tower without first seeing if they have sufficient funds to make sure they're going to be able to complete the tower, right? It would be foolish just to run into something not knowing that you can actually finish it. So here, when Peter commands us preparing our minds for action, we must consider the cost. We must look ahead knowing what it is that God might require of us. And we must ask ourselves a question here and now, am I ready to do that? Am I prepared for action? Or am I just going to run into something just in an emotional frenzy, you know, feeling really good about God this moment, and all of a sudden, the first wave of suffering hits, you know, I give $100, and all of a sudden I want that $100 for something else, and immediately I regret the fact that I gave that $100 to someone. No, we have to make sure before we go into something that we are prepared to make that sacrifice, that our minds are prepared for the consequences that may come from being willing to follow God. And again, none of us know exactly what God will command of our lives, right? We are a body, and Scripture says that to each one, God is given a different gift, God is given a different ministry, and so whatever ministry God has assigned to you will require different types of sacrifices. Might require more of your time, not as much of your money. Might require more of your money, less of your time. I don't know exactly what it's going to require of you. But nevertheless, all of us are required to serve the Lord wholeheartedly using whatever gift God has given. And so we must prepare our minds for action. We must say, Lord, I am ready to serve you. 
And I know it may require this sacrifice or that sacrifice, but I have considered that right now. I have taken that into account, and I am now prepared for action. So that's the first command that's given here, the practical effort that we must put forth. The next thing, verse 13 says, and being sober-minded. And being sober-minded. Well, what's the opposite of sober-minded? The opposite of sober-minded is drunk, right? Is being in a state where you're not in full control of your senses, where your mind is not able to consider everything, where you're kind of bumbling into things just because of the way that you're feeling. And so, again, we are not to enter into the Christian life. We are not to live the Christian life in a drunken state, going from emotional high to emotional high, going from one great act of commitment to another great act of commitment. No, we are to be sober-minded. Even sitting here right now, listening to God's word, you can consider, plan out in a sober-minded kind of way what is required of me if I am to be a living sacrifice to King Jesus. Take into account soberly what that might mean. Now, amazingly, for the people that Peter was writing to, if they were to reckon with sober minds what it might cost them, they would have to include in that sober accounting their very lives. Christians around them were being killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter is telling them, being sober-minded, understanding what this may really cost. They would have to weigh into account that it may cost them their very lives, and yet were they willing to follow Jesus? And so we here, we don't need to paint a rosy picture of the Christian life like every day is going to be better than the day before. Every day we're going to feel really good and God's going to bless us more every single day. We can recognize here and now that sometimes the Christian life will be very difficult. It will be arduous. Some days we may wish that we had chosen another route. And yet, if we set our hope fully on that grace that we brought to us, then we can remember that even in the most difficult moments we may have here and now, that there is a hope coming, a reward coming, that outweighs all the pain that we may experience here and now. And so, yes, we can be sober-minded, but the beautiful thing is that even being sober-minded, we can be filled with hope. We can expect enormous pain, and yet we can be filled with hope because of the great reward that is coming. And then the last practical command that's given here, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, notice the contrast we have here between our former ignorance and what God is calling us to. In our former ignorance, Peter says we might be conformed to passions. Right? We might be conformed to emotions. Whereas the life that God is calling us to, Peter is saying, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. And so the Christian life is primarily a life where we look at the truth of God's word. We're using our minds to understand God's word. We are taking God's word into our minds. We are praying that his word will go from our minds down into our hearts, but we are using our minds to plan to commit ourselves to God. On the contrast, 
Those who are living in their former ignorance, they are being conformed by passions. They are not using their minds to think about what is right, to think about what is wise, to think about what God's word says. No, they are driven by passions. They are saying, man, I I really crave this right now. I don't know how God would hold that back from me. Or man, I, I really want this. I don't know how I can resist that for much longer. They are not preparing minds for action. They are not sober-minded. They are being conformed by their passions. They are following the lusts of their heart. Now, beloved, I know that even we as Christians will never be able to fully escape in this life those lusts, those passions of our flesh. And yet we must understand day by day that we do battle with our passions. We are not a people conformed to the passions of our flesh, of our former ignorance. No, we are a people that are conformed to the mind of God by beholding the word of God. And so as we use our minds to grasp, to comprehend all the promises of God in his word, as we use our minds and our hearts to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as we do that, beloved, As we say no to worldly passions, through those means, God is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He is making us holy as he himself is holy. Isn't it a joy and a privilege that here under the the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ, that the way we pursue holiness is through hope, is through reasoning about the truth, Christianity is not wishful thinking. We're not trying to deceive ourselves or or trick ourselves into doing the right thing. No, we, we are trying to understand what is actually true, what is actually real. We are trying to look forward in hope to the great things that God is going to do. And so as our hearts are filled with that joy, as our minds are filled with that truth, that way we become holy. See, one of the downfalls of the law in the Old Testament was that the way you adhered to the law was by looking at the law, right? Looking at the commandment, saying, I must keep this commandment. But now in Jesus Christ, we don't merely look to the law to keep the law. We fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. We fix our eyes on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We count everything else as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And as we do that, as we experience the life of joy that comes through knowing Jesus Christ, and as we set our minds to see the truth of God's word and his world, God makes us a holy people, a holy nation who will praise him from the heart. Would you pray with me now that God would do that in our hearts and that God would increasingly do that around our world? Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for indeed giving us such great and precious promises that we have a hope that we can set our hearts fully upon. Would you help us to do that this morning, Lord, to strip away our hopes from short-lived and earthly things and to set our hopes fully on the grace that you've promised us? Lord, would you 
Help us to look to you with eyes of faith, knowing how much you love us, how much you care for us, that we don't need to offer anything as an ultimate sacrifice for the sake of your name, because you do take care of us and love us. Father, I pray that you would forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we do set our hearts on things that are below, on things that are transient, and we forsake the great privilege and benefits that you've given us in Christ Jesus. Would you have mercy on us, God? Lord, would you now receive our prayers of repentance and our prayers of intercession on behalf of the world around us?